You know what's crazy? I'll tell you what's crazy, the Purple Heart. This military award is the ultimate symbol of respect and sacrifice. It's given to soldiers who are killed or wounded in conflict. The majestic purple and bronze commendation is immediately recognizable. It conjures images of honor and bravery. When worn or displayed, it announces that the recipient has given something of himself that only a few warriors can give. According to the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor, more than 1.8 million Purple Heart medals have been presented to service members since the award was created in 1782. Make that 1.8 million and one. The story of this Purple Heart begins on a Wednesday afternoon in September 2019. The Medal of Honor has traveled from the Purple Heart Factory in Bravery Town, USA and sent to Pacific Grove, a sleepy seaside vista in Central California. It's known more for butterflies and expensive Airbnbs. The old soldier with the tattered Korean War vet hat has come here at least once a week. The transplanted New Yorker, who's lived on the Monterey Peninsula since 1977. He has aches and pains, and this is where he comes to temporarily dispel those demons. His weekly pilgrimage here is one part medicinal, one part routine. He comes to this butterfly burg full of sunshine and salt air as part of a ritual to see his longtime friend, confidant, and chiropractor. The two men talk about life while cracking bones and discussing centered atlases and geopolitical events. The chiropractor is a generation younger than the old soldier, but they have much in common. First and foremost, they're family men who love their country and dare to give their lives for it. The old soldier is a widower now. He lives alone after his third wife passed away two years ago. There are still lovely pictures of the woman all around his house, reflecting another time and space in life's kaleidoscope. For a man born in 1934, he does considerably well for himself. He has a gardener who's now his friend. The gardener keeps the grounds alive with sunshine and rainbows for all who gaze upon this edifice from the street. He has a housekeeper who comes regularly, keeping things pretty. He has a lady who buys meat and dices vegetables. She places each portion on a plate and covers it so he can pop it in the microwave, still enjoying a gourmet meal. The old soldier enjoys football and golf. When asked what he's doing, he frequently says, just relaxing. The old soldier likes to sit on his deck, high on the hill, and gaze at the Pacific. It's here that he gets to reminisce about a life that few can imagine. Each day is pretty much the same now for the old soldier, serene and tranquil. The constant is the sea lapping at time in the distance. Occasionally, the wind pushes in from the north, easing the fog across Point Lobos, bathing the bay in a field of white. There are mornings when the old soldier wakes up and gazes out his sliding glass door and perhaps thinks he's in heaven. Now 85, the old soldier has slowed. He's still ambulatory, but it takes effort. He laces up ankle braces that give him stability to shuffle along. His feet scuff the carpet, and falling is always an issue now for his children. I'm doing fine, I walk fine. The old soldier will snap to those who dare to be concerned. He's adjusted to the new millennium and the technological advances that millennials embrace. For years, the old soldier was proud to be the only human on the planet, still using a flip phone with gigantic buttons that could be seen from space. I don't need an iPhone, he would proudly announce at a Big Sur restaurant, displaying his prehistoric communication device. Millennials sitting nearby would quietly point 
and smirk at the old soldier. Did they respect him? Did they know that he had lived a life that they could only dream about? Or did they judge his book by his cover? An old man, now sitting in a world that has passed him by. When the old soldier's wife passed, he inherited her iPhone 10. His children taught him how to navigate the new technology. He was confused at first, even intimidated by the interminable array of possibilities that the device afforded him. But like everything else in life, he adapted, conquered it, and made it work for him. Now he has the latest phone with the largest upgraded plan. The old soldier is beating the millennials at their own game, using technology, harnessing more data capacity than NASA had in 69 when they put a man on the moon. When he texts his family, it's a moment to be savored. The old soldier closes his eyes tight and brings the phone close to his lips. He pauses and thinks deeply about what he wants to say, and then he talks to Siri like she's his friend. Siri, send a text, he commands. He uses words like darling and sweetheart, terms from an error that has long ago been forgotten. He always tells people he loves them. He's learned to say comma to insert a pause in a sentence. He will say exclamation point, indicating that this is a sentence of importance. As always, through his 10 decades of life, the old soldier has adapted and overcome. He's old school. He's a patriot who bleeds red, white, and blue. He's simple and content. If possible, Frank Sinatra would sing the theme song to the old soldier's life. Now that his wife has passed, he has three cars in the driveway. He often chooses which car to drive based on low battery warnings and which car needs to run to keep a charge. Three cars is excessive for one 85-year-old man. He knows this. He often laments that three cars is excessive, and someday, in all the days left, he will do something about it. And in many ways, this too is the story of the old soldier's life, excessive and comfortable and full of procrastination. The old soldier rarely travels anymore. A trip to the post office in downtown Carmel-by-the-Sea is more than plenty. The post office is his daily quest. One he relishes, it gets the old soldier out and about and keeps his juices flowing. Sometimes he stops on Scenic Drive, usually the south side of Carmel Beach, near 13th Street. This is where the tide pushes the seaweed onto the beach in a gigantic decaying funk. The smell is incongruent with the picturesque beauty of sea otters lounging on their backs, cracking abalones, and the waves crashing onto the neatly manicured fairway of Pebble Beach beyond. The old soldier will often marvel at the horizon, at the undulating waves that ripple endlessly across the spectrum of time. He drives a convertible Jaguar. Of course, the top is always down. He has 500 horses under the hood. Remember excess? He turns the car off. Somewhere in the speaker system of this majestic automobile, the sounds of a Frank Sinatra ballad bathe the moment. In a way, the old soldier is looking at his life. It goes as far as the eye can see. Somewhere along that hazy horizon, it both begins and ends. In between is a sea of existence, waves of time, crashing on the beach, but also silently swelling for thousands of miles unnoticed, free, without worry. Sometimes the sea has been turbulent, but more times than not, it's like this moment, filled with equanimity of a life well-lived. When he arrives at the post office, everyone says hello. He's Mr. P.O. Box 7496. He's had that geographical postal location for the better part of six decades now. People stand in line and talk to the old soldier. For a man born when Franklin D. Roosevelt was president, he's still loquacious, 
and astute. He's quick with his political take on the world, and he has an understanding of the mechanics of life. The old soldier rarely leaves his home without his tattered Korean War vet hat. It's a symbol, part of who he is. There was a time when the old soldier wore a cowboy hat to define him. He had a thick beard and mustache. It projected who he was. There was a time when the old soldier wore a bright red English driving cap. It was dashing and sporty, and it too reflected who he was. But now the old soldier, as he circles the sun for his 86th year, is resolute that his final image is that of a man who sacrificed in a faraway place that is still so foreign to so many. Time catches us all, regardless of what hat we choose to wear. I don't feel old, he'll often say. Then I look in the mirror and wonder, who's that old man looking back at me? There have been many seismic events over the course of the old soldier's life. World War II, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Vietnam, Watergate. But nothing has provided more of a blueprint for the old soldier than the Korean War. The devastating sequence of events that took place there 70 years ago forged his young life. He was like human iron thrust into a hearth, the metal tender and hot, easily malleable, ready to become anything that it needed to be. Some thought that the old soldier would pass away when his wife suddenly died. She was the yin to his yang. They completed each other. For 30 years, they sat on that same couch, watched the same TV programs, pet the same dogs, called the same grandkids, and enjoyed each other's smiles. They lived in a Doris Day world full of different sensibilities and expectations from people and life. Then, in a flash, she was gone and he was alone. The old soldier cried and his heart was full of pain, but the old soldier has lived life, survived the landmines that God throws at all of us. He could have surrendered to the heartache, moved closer to the final abyss. He could have surrendered in a final white flag moment, but the old soldier is not a quitter. When the love of his life passed, he reloaded his six shooter and moved to the higher ground. He forged forward like that malleable steel, changing, continuing down the path that he alone has chosen. Sometimes the old soldier proceeds recklessly. Many times the old soldier forges forward without thought to what might be. But in the end, after 85 years, this is who the old soldier is, who he's always been. So instead of boxing up his belongings, buying a burial plot, and waiting for the reaper of death to knock on his door on the hill, the old soldier lived more life. He stayed on the hill where the waves and the sunlight bid him good morning, and the owls and the stars tell him good night. He did what was comfortable and lived in the couple's house that is now too big for one old soldier. He takes up very little space in the 3,500 square foot home on the hill. It's cluttered with a life of his, hers, and theirs, generations of furniture and knickknacks everywhere. There's an entire living room full of clutter. It symbolizes all that's right and wrong with the old soldier's world. There's a piano in the corner. No one plays it. It's sadly out of tune. The top is covered by two dozen photographs of every child and grandchild. The memories are delightful. They're often gazed upon by the emptiness of the space. There are wooden figurines standing at attention around the baby grand. There's a painting of all the Republican presidents playing poker. It hangs over a fireplace that hasn't seen flames in decades. The old soldier's children constantly fume. Who wants that? What will we do with this, Dad? We've got to reduce the clutter. 
Nobody has an answer. Nobody makes a move. So the clock tick-tocks along. The sun rises, the fog rolls in. The stars wave goodnight. Somewhere in that grand room, the penguins stand at attention, guarding a piano that nobody will ever play for yet another day. And in the meantime, the old soldier lives his life with a simple purpose. He goes to bed at night after spending much too much time on the internet machine. He sends funny jokes to his friends and pecks away with two fingers on a keyboard that was once used by Mr. Magoo. He wakes up too early in the morning when the boys, as he calls his dachshunds, now 15 years old, bark and need to be fed. They also go back to sleep and wake later in the day when the mood feels right. In a way, the old soldier and the boys are the last members of a platoon. They're in their bunker on the hill, where the only enemy now is time. The old soldier has expensive china in the dining room. It's worth a fortune, he will tell every visitor that happens by the cluttered space, so full of memories that no one can enter. But the old soldier has no use for 16-piece china sets, passed down from his great-grandmother before the turn of the century. He only needs one dish, one plate, one fork, spoon, and knife. He will wash each by hand, then place them in the cabinet till the next meal. No use running a full load of dishes for just me, he will say when anyone visits. In a way, the old soldier is back in his foxhole with a canteen full of river water and a rock for a pillow. Though he has beautiful dishes and a machine that will wash them using an array of scented cleansers, he opts for the simplistic existence of a plate and a fork. Once a soldier, always a soldier, dealing with the possibility of having to make a quick retreat. The old soldier lives in a big house that's cluttered with a life fully lived. Russian end tables are covered with pictures of children and great-grandchildren. There is crystal in the cabinet. There are pewter figurines in the curio cabinet. There are antiques of varying value, taking up space wherever space will permit. His two little dogs are his constant companions, and they stay by his side. When he moves, they move. They're his soldiers. He is their platoon sergeant. Oscar's my Velcro, he'll say, about the little Dotson, who's had more life-saving operations than a race car driver not wearing a seatbelt. If a dog could have a purple heart, Oscar should have one. He has survived more than a dog should, and he has brought more comforting moments to the old soldier than any of us will ever know. They're a band of brothers, feet and paws in silent love, all living up on that hill. So the old soldier enters the chiropractor's office on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. He says hello to the receptionist, who he thinks of like family. He makes jokes and brings laughter into the tiny office, lighting up the pedestrian space with an illuminating persona like he has for many years. But the old soldier will soon come to realize this visit will be uniquely poignant and celebrate a life moment 70 years in the making. The old soldier enters the exam room, the same room he's visited for decades. Now 85 years old, the old soldier wobbles a bit when he walks. He's a little more hunched over than he once was, but his eyes are still bright and clear and reveal a lust for life that's now as vibrant as it was when he was a young man, cutting school in New York City to ride the subways from one end of Manhattan to the other. Before him stands his chiropractor, a longtime friend. The chiropractor is tall with flowing hair like Moses in the Ten Commandments. The two men share a bond that few friends have. They understand this bond, this friendship, and it quietly nourishes each of them every Wednesday, sometimes beyond. There's a cell phone video that shows the moment as it unfolds. 
It begins awkwardly at first. It shows the old soldier standing against the wall. His longtime chiropractor and friend is a retired Marine. He's well-respected in the Marines, and he has influential friends, as it turns out. The chiropractor is tall and commands much of the space in the room. The old soldier seems small in this moment. He looks up at the former Marine as something wonderful begins to unfold. The old soldier is at ease, but curious. This is not how most sessions usually begin. On video, the retired Marine begins to speak. His tone is solemn and direct. For the defense of your comrades in arms and the people of the Republic of South Korea, he pauses. He pushes his hand into his pocket and secures something. Then he continues. As a former member of the U.S. Marine Corps, it's my privilege to present you with this decoration, which symbolizes honor and self-sacrifice. The retired Marine with the flowing locks of Moses steps forward and begins to extend the item that he secured from his pocket. His hands are large, his purpose not yet clear. The old soldier looks down curiously. What is it? He asks. The retired Marine begins to pin the prestigious award on the old soldier's pocket without explaining. Is that a purple heart? The old soldier murmurs, his thoughts running wild in that moment. The person videotaping gasps. Oh my God, she exclaims. MacArthur never gave me one, the old soldier says calmly. He's the one that should have done it at your hospital bedside, the former Marine says stoically, proudly, as he steps back to admire his magnanimous gesture. As a former member of the U.S. Marine Corps, I thank you for your service, the chiropractor says, saluting the old soldier, who reciprocates. The moment is breathtaking and poignant. The purple heart, now affixed to the old soldier's pocket, symbolizes a life and death moment 70 years ago but was never properly memorialized till now. November, 1950. The old soldier is a puppy of a man. He has big paws that he will one day grow into. But for now, he's lived no life, has no stories to tell. He's simply a young man with a burning desire to experience what life has to offer. The hat the young soldier wears now is that of a grunt, a foxhole-digging, latrine-hugging amoeba. He's a soldier in Uncle Sam's army, and as such, he's one of many who are revered and often thought expendable. The young soldier is only 16 years old. He should be at the high school prom or at the soda shop smiling at teenage girls. Instead, he's in the armpit of the earth. He's on a frozen mountaintop in North Korea, above a God-forsaken place known as the Chosin Reservoir. The winds on this day are unforgiving blowing from the bowels of hell across a landscape scarred with ice and blood. It's so cold here that thousands of men will freeze and body parts will die, becoming useless. Marines and soldiers are here hunkering down for what will eventually become a bloodbath. Many historians consider Chosin to be one of the most brutal battles in the Korean conflict. The wind chill is 40 below, and soldiers and Marines are not properly equipped with warm clothing, or as it turns out, enough firepower. The generals, smoking their cigars and admiring one another's polished stars, look at this place on a map and decide it, this is where they must launch their surprise attack on the North Koreans and the Chinese. In a place where hopes come to die, the military brass has sent a legion of young soldiers to protect a chunk of frozen rock. What the general's maps don't tell them is this place is unforgiving. It's older than time, and it cares not for men. What the generals cannot know in the 1950s 
is that Chinese people are unrelenting and fierce. What the young soldier will soon come to learn is this late November battle in 1950 will prove to be a pivotal moment for not only the world, but for the course of the young soldier's life. So it is here, on a speck of frozen dirt, north of the 38th parallel, north of the Yellow Sea, north of Pyongyang, that a massacre will commence. It will take place in an environment so cold, it is the true adversary of both sides. The wind incapacitates, the cold devastates. It weakens physical bodies, and crushes the spirit of anyone who bears to stare into its savage, unrelenting eyes. It is here that the young soldier finds himself. It is in this shithole of hell that the young soldier is about to embark on this life moment that will forever change the path that he walks. He shouldn't be here. He's too young to be a soldier in the U.S. Army. But he lied. He wanted adventure and experience. He lied, and this lie, for good, for bad, would propel his dominoes forward, crashing one upon the next. This was a time before computers and sophisticated record keeping. Lying was easy. If nobody cares about your lie, then your lie becomes your truth. And so it began for the young soldier. What's your name? The recruiter most likely said. Okay, and you're 18 years old? I can't imagine that it took much more than that to be enlisted in the United States Army. After all, World War II was over. And now the United States was dancing with another world conflict. Bodies were needed to re-engage the war machine. So the young soldier went to basic training. He was smart. He had an aptitude for intelligence. The baby-faced kid was 16, but he could read maps and think on his feet. It's not so hard to believe. The army takes felons and miscreants and people running from demons. Is it really that hard to fathom that a 16-year-old boy could say he was 18 and they'd simply rubber stamp his ass into the army? So there he was in Korea. He was with a brat pack of pimples and oversized fatigues. They all wore dopey-looking helmets, armed with grease guns. They were American GIs, full of testosterone, trained to kill. This is the American way. The young soldier fit right in. Everyone in that foxhole with him had a lie they were protecting or didn't care about. The young soldier had graduated high school in New York City at 16 years of age, and now he was in a conflict that would almost end his life. Did his parents know he was here? No. The young soldier lied to them too. My mother thought that I was at Fort Dix, he would often say with a Cheshire cat smile. He lied to his parents and his sister. He didn't want them to worry. The lie begat more lies. They always do. But the lie is the ticket that propelled the young soldier down this life path. It was the mechanism that opened the gate, allowing him access to this crazy carnival of frozen insanity. The lie that he told to his family and to the army would be a weight that the old soldier would forever carry. It's the reason it took 70 years to get his Purple Heart. It's the reason that his stories of incredible proportion often were met by silent eye rolls by distant family members later in his life. But the lie he told is the single defining catalyst enabling him to live the life that he's lived, to walk the path that he's walked. In the end, the lie is what brought him truth, his truth. To this day, it's doubtful the old soldier would have done it any differently. Play your cards and live with the results. The old soldier is still a lot like the young soldier, extemporaneous fanciful, capricious, like the waves he has so often pondered from his deck. 
He too is an undulating spirit who proceeds forward at his own risk. So as a child warrior, wet behind the ears, too stupid to even know he was about to die, he finds himself in a dirty frozen foxhole. The protective space is a dirt wall littered with cigarette butts, the stink of urine and fear. The Chosen Reservoir is a turd of a place. It's a canker sore on a lanced boil of Earth. If given a chance, most people would rather go to the dark side of the moon. This speck of putrid dirt spawned more death than the mind can even imagine. Untold numbers of Chinese soldiers were mowed down, like weeds hit by a fire hose spraying poisonous Roundup. Thousands of U.S. soldiers and Marines made the ultimate sacrifice in this toilet of frozen despair. Yet it's here that countless men fought with resilience and bravery, protecting one another from an invading menace that seemed interminable. Many soldiers would get a Purple Heart on this day. They were official. They were of age to serve and die. The old soldier's story of the battle has vacillated slightly over time. There are new nuances, there are different reflections, and sometimes a different spin. But for the most part, the story has remained the same. It's hard to forget the moment that you shoot a man who is at the same time sticking a bayonet through your gut. That's a moment that tends to linger in your thoughts forever. Years later, in his early 80s, the old soldier will sit on his couch in the room with the penguins, piano, and poker playing presidents, and he will recount this terrible story. Historians now call it the Battle of the Frozen Chosen. I went up north with the 1st Marine Division, the old soldier says. It was grueling. It was like the end of civilization. We were in the mountains in the north. It was like 40 below zero. The winds were blowing at 60 miles per hour. It was bitter cold, so windy, he says, staring at the floor, the images of the moment filling his memories. The weather interfered with planes. We needed boots on the ground behind the Manchurian border to find out what the enemy was doing. I will never forget that night. I was with the 1st Marine Division. We were supposed to go around 3 a.m., but it was overcast that night, he says. We were supposed to go behind enemy lines. I was 16 years old. I lied about my age. I was a bright young kid and I could get away with it, he adds. The old soldier pauses as his little dachshund Meyer barks outside. Meyer, quiet, he screams. The old soldier smiles. Meyer is his platoon mate. He loves him like a soldier loves the man in the foxhole beside him. The old soldier gathers his thoughts. Where was I? Oh yeah, it was about an hour before we were supposed to take off, before we were supposed to head for the river. My buddies were smoking and talking. And then we heard bugles, and we had never heard bugles before. It was eerie. It was in the mountains, echoing at night. It sounded like more bugles than there were. Then the next thing we knew, they were coming like ants. The old soldier talks about the Marines firing flares into the air to illuminate the frozen darkness. That's when we saw it, he says. Thousands of them, coming like ants, coming down the hill toward us. The old soldier talks about the Marines opening up with mortars and artillery fire and machine guns. We wiped out the first group, he says. It took half an hour. Then it was quiet. It was deadly quiet. We thought we wiped out the Chinese unit, the entire invasion. We cheered. We had no casualties. This went on for about 15 more minutes. Then more bugles. It was the same eerie sound. But this time we knew what was coming, he said. The old soldier described the second unit's coming. It was twice the size of the first, he says. 
staring into the depths of his memory. Many of them had no weapons. They simply picked up the weapons of the first group, the guns dropped by the dead soldiers, and they kept coming. The old soldier described the horror of mowing down this second group. This time there was less celebration. He said it wasn't long before the bugle sounded again, and the third wave of Chinese soldiers rolled out of the darkness like ants. They too reached down, picking up the weapons of the massacred. We weren't cheering anymore, he said. We were scared. At 16, I was too dumb to be scared. He talks about the big Marine in the foxhole next to him. The Marine was from the Midwest, where his family were farmers. The old soldier says this man that he hardly knew would be the difference between living and dying. So the third wave of bugle sounds, he says. By this time, we had zero ammunition. MacArthur left our supply lines barren. We moved up so fast they could not arrange for our supplies to keep up with us, he said. So we didn't have the ammo, and we were isolated up there. And they fired more flares, and here came the next group. And they picked up the weapons left by the others and then kept coming at us. The moment is clear in the old soldier's mind. The memories are hard. The reality that his young life, about to change readily, apparent to him now. Somewhere, someplace, there was an order to retreat. Somebody said, get out, he says. We had nothing to fight with. We were out of ammo. We had our rifles, our bayonets, our bare hands. And before we could say Jack Robinson, they were right on top of us. Our guys started running. It was a mass evacuation. All you could see was guys heading south. This is where the Purple Heart will come into play. This is the part of the story that the 16-year-old was not prepared for. I look back and suddenly, there in front of me is this kid. He can't be much older than me. He's Chinese. He was dressed in padded clothing with flaps on his ears. The next thing I know, I had one shot left. I fired it, it hit, and he went back. I had no more rounds, and this guy next to me, he said, let's go. Then he looked at me with this look, and I looked down, and there was this rifle, and this bayonet, and it was in me. I was bleeding. The butt of the rifle was on the ground. I remember looking up, and that's all I remember. I passed out. The old soldier will tell those gathered in his living room. From what I was told later on, this man, the guy in the foxhole from the Midwest, carried me many miles on his back. He packed my wound. He didn't remove the bayonet. He was afraid that I would have bled out. So he packed the wound with ice. He personally carried me down. I was unconscious. I'm not sure how long it took. Thank God, I don't remember any of that. The old soldier talks about being dragged to a mash unit. He says they left the bayonet in him, transporting him by helicopter to a hospital ship offshore. Unfortunately, the big guy who saved my life was killed in the retreat. Eventually, the young soldier is flown to a hospital in Kyoto, Japan. When I woke up in the hospital, the doctors were talking to me. I was glad I was alive. I couldn't believe it. The bayonet they removed along with my gallbladder. I should have been dead. All the corpsmen said I was in severe pain. They kept injecting me with morphine all the way down. I was in that hospital for a month. The old soldier talks about the Japanese nurse bringing him the bayonet that almost killed him. I still have it, he says proudly. It was a German officer's bayonet. Back then, the Chinese were using German weapons from the Second World War. The old soldier remembers going home and visiting the family of the soldier who saved him. He was from Kansas, and the man's family was happy to talk to the young soldier and hear the story of how their son saved a life, how he did not die in vain. And then the old soldier talks about the lie again. Back in the hospital in Japan, the army brass were coming around. 
and they found out that I was only 16 years old. They couldn't believe it. They were upset that I was injured and fighting in Korea. The old soldier says the army gave him three options. He could be discharged honorably. He could stay in the army stateside or he could go to college and the army would pay for it. He could then re-enlist when he graduated and was of age. The young soldier chose option three, attending New York University on the army's dime. Not only didn't he die, he was going to college for free, even if he was missing a gallbladder. My parents knew I was in the army, he says, but they never knew I was in Korea. They really never knew where I was in the army. I had friends at Fort Dix and I made postcards out before I left and had them mail them. I remember my mother wrote and said, are you wearing your rubbers? The old soldier laughed, thinking about his mother asking whether he was wearing his rubbers while he was being rushed to a mash unit on the other side of the planet. The old soldier summarizes the moment this way. That was an important part of my life. At 16, because I had no gallbladder, there were many things I could no longer eat or drink for the rest of my life. It also molded my mind and my psyche. I was indestructible. I said to myself, I should have been killed. I'm living on borrowed time. I had no fear of dying. And even if I do die, so what? But that followed me my whole life, through the university, through my second army career, and even my business career after that. It's really been the experience of my core beliefs. It was very interesting and still very surreal to me today. The old soldier talks about the scar in his stomach and back. He talks about never telling his parents or sister. He talks about majoring in business administration at NYU. He talks about not getting a Purple Heart because his time in the Chosin Reservoir was never documented. The Army couldn't afford the bad press of a 16-year-old boy sneaking into a war and being critically injured. So to the Army, it never happened. But to the 16-year-old soldier, it was as real as real could be. The old soldier is now complete. The Purple Heart that he should have received in the 50s is now in its proper place. The ribbon is on his hat. The medal itself, it hangs proudly on the bayonet that almost took his life. When the sun rises in the morning, it paints the brilliant bronze medal with a welcoming light. When the sun sets in the evening, it bathes the purple majesty with an orange glow that quietly says, thank you and good night. And somewhere out there, among the undulating waves of time, the fog of heaven rolls into the bay. The old soldier sits on his deck, his platoon of dogs by his chair, and he's at peace. The circle is complete, and he knows that he has lived a full and rewarding life. Thank you for your service, old soldier. Getting a Purple Heart 70 years after the fact, that's crazy.